from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Bhutan is one of the poorest countries on the planet, but the king of Bhutan is more concerned with gross national happiness than he is with gross national product. So, to the delight of some citizens and the chagrin of others, he's opened his once remote nation to the outside world of television. I watch Bold and Beautiful. I'm addicted to that, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 they are. Because we are just sitting around doing nothing in front of the TV. As a family, like, we hardly talk to each other. I think Buddhist people, by nature and by our culture, we know how to be responsible. We know what to watch. And uh, I think television has brought happiness to most of our people, and this is what I'm doing, <laughs> bringing happiness. <laughs> Bhutan Goes Global this week on Living on Earth also talks open on greenhouse gas limits for developing nations. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Kyoto Protocol to reduce greenhouse gas emissions took effect just three months ago, but already climate experts from 190 countries are looking ahead to what comes after the treaty's first commitment period ends in 2012. They met recently in Bonn, Germany, and among other issues, looked at ways to include developing nations such as China and India, as well as the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, the United States, in any future reduction regime. The gathering comes amid recent scientific reports documenting that the Earth has already begun to absorb more heat than it radiates, and that global warming could spin out of control if steps are not taken to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Jennifer Morgan, who directs the International Climate Change Program for the World Wildlife Fund, attended the conference and joins us now from Bonn. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Now, Jennifer, this is the first time the Kyoto participants have assembled since, uh, well, I guess you'd call it a particularly contentious meeting last December in Buenos Aires. What was the tone like at this gathering, and what if any concrete action came out of it? Well, the tone was very constructive and very forward-looking by the vast majority of the delegates here in Bonn. And the concrete action that came out, I guess, is that there is momentum for beginning negotiations um, at the next formal meeting of the protocol. And that's very new. Um, I think that... um, especially from developing countries, there was quite an urgency expressed here. What are some of the scenarios being discussed um, that would encourage um, the commitment uh, of developing countries to some kind of limits on their greenhouse gas emissions in the next phase of, of the Kyoto Agreement? Well, I think there's two key elements here. I think one is that developing countries are already um, doing quite a lot. China, for example, is doing what much more than the United States on renewable energy. And I think they could be encouraged to do more through the carbon markets that have opened up with the entry into force of the Kyoto Protocol. We now have a new currency. And if developing countries could get um, finance through the market to, for example, build much uh, more renewable energy than building new coal plants, they're interested in that. Brazil said that. Argentina and Mexico and China said that. So I think that's one uh, side of it. The other side, which was very striking, is that these countries uh, presented, as I've never heard them before, the impacts that are happening already in their countries and the fact that climate change is threatening their own development. And therefore, they know know that something more needs to happen. What are these developing countries calling for over the near term? 
Well, over the near term, they're calling for things, um, a, a mixture of things. The first is, of course, that in order for them to take additional steps um, and reduce their emissions, they need the financial and technical support to do so. These are not countries with high GDPs by any stretch of the imagination. They may be growing, but they're still developing countries. The other concrete thing or medium short-term step was that South Africa and a number of other countries called for a Montreal mandate. And what that basically means is that in Montreal at the next international climate meeting, countries would formally start negotiating for what comes after 2012, which is the end of the current Kyoto Protocol. Now, we still have a ways to go to get there, but the fact that they're opening up that door, and opening that door means their commitments will be on the table, was a very different um, conversation than we had in December. What would it take to get the U.S. to sign on to mandatory greenhouse gas reductions? Well, um, I think that there's a lot happening in the U.S. right now to help with that outside of the White House. So you need to have domestic support for it, and you do have that in many parts of the country, in the northeast of the United States, California, the cities that just signed up from, from New York to Seattle to the Kyoto target. But you really need a White House to wake up and understand that climate change is a serious problem that is the majority of which is caused by humans. And everyone from Prime Minister Blair to, you know, the head of GE is now saying this. I'm not quite sure what the president needs to hear. What's the next step then for the Kyoto process? The next step is um, there'll be a series of technical meetings the next couple of weeks. But uh, in the hallways, I think people will be talking about what could this launch of negotiations or Montreal mandate look like. And then they'll come back together again in November in Montreal um, to come together to say, we can't wait any longer. We need to begin talking and formally negotiating uh, deeper cuts in greenhouse gas emissions to avoid the worst impacts. The time is short, and the window for avoiding those impacts is closing quickly. Jennifer Morgan directs the International Climate Change Program for the World Wildlife Fund in Bonn, Germany. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you. When the Defense Department released its latest list of military bases slated to be closed, state and local officials around the nation started scrambling. Many are fighting to save their backyard bases and the jobs they provide. But if the military installations do go away, localities will be looking to put the former Defense Department land to new civilian use as housing, parks, or industrial centers. A number of the bases are on prime real estate, but they can also be highly polluted with toxic dumps, tainted water, even unexploded bombs. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports that contamination is often the biggest challenge for those who hope to breathe new life into old military bases. After more than 70 years of military activity on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, Otis Air National Guard Base could be headed for retirement. It's on the latest list of installations the Defense Department wants to close, and it's probably the one with the worst contamination. Cape Cod resident Peter Schlesinger says the base has a long, proud history that has also left a long list of pollutants. Fuels, aviation fuels, uh, diesel spills, different types of cleaning solvents, uh, rocket fuel additives, explosives, 
Much of that was dumped right on top of the region's main water source and has seeped into the aquifer, which is why Schlesinger has joined federal and state regulators and the military in a multi-million dollar effort to track down and clean up contamination. Without clean water, we don't have jobs. We, we won't have tourists. We won't be able to sell our homes. And uh, we won't have a safe place to bring up our children. The nonprofit Center for Public Environmental Oversight reviewed defense records on 35 of the bases slated for closure and found widespread contamination. Center Director Lenny Siegel found seven of the installations on the Environmental Protection Agency's Superfund list of the worst toxic dumps. The Defense Department projects total cleanup costs at about $2.9 billion. A lot of that cleanup is already underway, but Siegel says the cost is likely to go up after bases close down. You know, until you're really out looking for, for problems because you're going to do something with the property, uh, you may miss some of them. So uh, it's quite possible that the, the, the final bill for cleanup at these sites will be somewhere around twice as much as what it is now. From the last round of base closures in the 90s, about a quarter of the land, some 138,000 acres, has still not been transferred to local control. A report last month from the Government Accountability Office says that's mostly due to the need for more environmental cleanup. The military's responsible for that job, but the military's definition of clean does not always match what regulators want. Tim Ford with the nonprofit Association of Defense Communities says that can leave the local government in a sort of bureaucratic crossfire. You have the, the military services saying that they'll only pay to have the land cleaned up to this standard. Then the states say, well, you have to clean it up to this other standard. And the people in the middle of the local redevelopment authority who can't make anything happen because no one can agree on what the standard is going to be for cleanup. Ford, Siegel, and others say there are lessons to be learned from the earlier base closures. Lesson one, communities need more information. At Colorado's former Lowry Air Force Base near Denver, new homes and businesses are already in place. But resident Ann Callison says it has not gone smoothly. She's been involved with the Air Force cleanup for more than a decade and says she asked for a full characterization of the site at one of their first meetings. And it took nine years to get the first draft of that. Um, in those nine years, uh, some development began, and the results have not been pretty. Home builders found soil laced with asbestos. Callison says that brought a new round of cleanups, lawsuits, and anxiety among homeowners, all of which might have been avoided with earlier disclosure. I would just suggest to all these leaders that they get these operational site histories done pronto. This is the first step towards redevelopment. Lesson two follow the money. In Monterey County, California, the Army's old Fort Ord took up thousands of scenic seaside acres, very valuable but mostly still too dangerous to sell, largely due to unexploded ordnance. The military has already spent $300 million cleaning up Fort Ord, and Redevelopment Authority Director Michael Hulamard says it could take twice that to finish the job. But Hulamard says government spending to clean closed bases has been going down. Significantly, it's been reduced every year for the last six or seven. Uh, right now, at the rate that they're funding it this year, it'll take 25 years. The Defense Department says its funding is adequate. Alex Beeler is DOD's Assistant Deputy Undersecretary for Environment, Safety, and Health. Beeler defends the military's cleanup record and says they're looking for ways to improve. We are using the best 
and latest technology uh, to make sure that we can clean up successfully, completely in the most efficient and effective manner. And we're on the hook. We have to get the job done. If we don't get the job done, you know, we're, we're subject to all the strictures of the law. DOD has tried to persuade Congress to change some of the laws on toxic waste at bases. Environmental groups call those special exemptions that could make matters worse. Beeler says they're simple clarifications. Congress has so far denied the military's requests. Back in Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, Peter Schlesinger keeps an eye on contamination at the Otis base, considers those hard lessons from other base closures, and remains an optimist. He's sure his community will benefit if Otis shuts down because he knows his neighbors will continue to demand a full cleanup. It's the citizenry that get involved to read the reports, to think about the material presented, and be willing to stand up. And uh, this kind of uh, citizen activism is uh, really required to uh, effectively direct uh, any base cleanup. Consider it a call to arms for the civilians who want to make the most of their old military bases. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Coming up, it looks awful, but it tastes great. And that combination may have the American eel headed for the endangered species list. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, how old people will save the world. But first, when it comes to protecting animals, there are some that are an easy sell to the public. The ones with melodic songs, furry skin, bright colors, or majestic size. But that leaves out most fish. The brothers Doug and Tim Watts want to protect a fish with a slimy reputation, the American eel. They want it placed on the endangered species list. From member station WNPR in Hartford, Nancy Cohen explains why. 40-year-old Doug Watts says when he and his big brother Tim were growing up in Easton, Massachusetts, the woods and streams were their playground. We could come home covered with mud. We could come home with snakes, with turtles, with frogs, with bugs, you name it. And eels. They used eels as bait to catch striped bass on Cape Cod. And Tim recalls the time he and Doug saw an eel unlike any other they'd seen before. They were fishing in a pond with their father, and they noticed some fishing tackle floating by. We said, hey, Dad, look at that bobber over there. Let's go grab it. So we pulled up our lines and went paddling over there, and he hauled it up, and there was this great big eel that, you know, was probably three feet long. And it was black, too. You know, it, was it was almost coal black. Yeah, and it was, you know, probably as big around as your arm. They cut the line and let the eel go, but the impression it made stayed with them. Today, Doug's a writer with the Atlantic Salmon Journal in Maine and fights to protect migrating fish. Tim, a former Marine, is a janitor by night and keeps an eye on the eels by day. One place he checks on them is not far from his home, the Weeweantic River in Wareham, Massachusetts. A couple days ago, this place was loaded with them up here. All these little pockets in the rocks would be full of these little clumps of eels, and I see very few up here now. I I have a funny feeling someone's been up here poaching them. Tim says fishing for the American eel is one reason its numbers are declining. Eels are considered a culinary delicacy, and demand from Asia and Europe has pushed up the price. Young eels are going for $275 a pound this spring in Maine, and they face other threats, including contaminants in rivers and loss of wetland habitat. 
Six months ago, the Watts brothers filed a petition with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service asking that the American eel be listed as endangered. Experts are also concerned. A year ago, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission issued a statement saying the government should consider the American eel a candidate for listing under the Endangered Species Act. A defining moment for the Watts brothers came nine years ago when they found a mass of migrating eels stuck below this old mill dam on the Weeweantic River. The brothers spent several nights netting them and moving them over the dam. If they have to sit below this dam for three weeks, two weeks, a month, you get a huge amount of mortality through predators that you wouldn't otherwise get if they had free passage upstream. Every spring, Tim sees the same thing, one-year-old American eels that can't get past this dam. They're only a little bigger than a toothpick and spend a lot of time hiding from predators like fish, crabs, and birds. And you turn over a rock, and from under the rock, they all go squiggling away. Tim gently picks one up. At this age, the eels are like tiny glass snakes with big black eyes. That looks like that's his spine running right through there. They're so transparent, you can look right through the top of their head and see their, see their little brain and everything in there. They may appear fragile, but these young eels are determined. Some will slither through cracks and crevices and dams, up rivers to ponds where they live for decades. The American eel has a huge range, from Brazil to Greenland. In North America, they live in the Northeast, the South, the Midwest, and the Maritime Provinces. They only spawn once and then die. All are born and migrate from the same place, the clear waters of the Sargasso Sea near Bermuda, including the one Tim is holding. That little guy came about, I don't know, a couple thousand miles through the ocean to get here. His mother could have came out of a river of who knows where. Could have came out of the Rio Grande River. Could have came out of the Missouri River up in South Dakota. Could have came from this river. There's no telling where it came from. It's kind of amazing. Tim and his brother Doug are fascinated with this animal, but sickened by the obstacles humans have thrown in its way. Doug Watts recalls one fall five years ago when he saw what he thought were vacuum cleaner hoses tangled below a hydroelectric dam. The bottom was littered with them, and some of these were almost as long as my leg, and they were all chopped up. They were sexually mature female eels heading downstream to the ocean to spawn, but the turbines of a hydropower dam stopped them. Doug says dam operators should give eels a way to get by. He's gone so far as to leave dead eels on the doorstep of the powerhouse of one dam and has brought buckets of dead eels to the main department of marine resources. You can't be causing these fish kills. You just can't be grinding up these female eels while they're going to spawn for once in their life. They're 40 year, you know, some of these eels are older than me. Um, they came up these rivers in, in the 1950s. You know, without mothers, there's not going to be any babies, and the, the amount, the number being killed is, is frightening. On the Wankinko River in Wareham, Doug and Tim walk along a fish ladder designed to help some migrating fish get over a dam, but it's not much help for young eels. 
The two brothers stand with their heads bowed, eyes probing the water. There's a whole bunch of them tucked in that little corner by the, uh, right at the entrance of the fishway. There's a big, almost like a great big ball of them. They're trying to, oh, yeah, I see them. They're trying to hide in the corner there. Yeah. The eels are wriggling like dancers doing a fast shimmy, trying to make it upstream. Tim decides to give them a hand. He takes off his shoes and drops into the water. Too bad this is radio. You can't see my nice legs. <laughs> he scoops up a net full of these living noodles and with Doug beside him, carries them over the dam, which is against state law, and drops them into the water. Here's the illegality. Henry David Throw and civil disobedience. We got a hundred million left to go. <laughs> the brothers want the government to take over the protection of this fish and cradle it inside the laws of the Endangered Species Act. They're still waiting to find out if their petition will be approved. Regardless of the outcome, Tim and Doug Watts will continue to do what they can to save the American eel. For Living on Earth, I'm Nancy Cohen in Wareham, Massachusetts. Okay, take a moment now and listen to these synonyms for the word old. On the one hand, you have mature, ripened, seasoned, and tested. On the other hand, you have obsolete, outmoded, out of date, and passe. And all too often, says Dr. Bill Thomas, it's the negative side of aging that gets the most spin in today's American society, where the population of senior citizens is expected to top 70 million in the next 15 years. Dr. Thomas is a geriatrician in upstate New York who sees America's seniors as a potentially powerful group of leaders, if only society would let them lead. He's written a new book called What Are Old People For? How Elders Will Save the World. And he joins me now. Dr. Thomas, hello. Hello. So i got to ask you this. We know about various isms in the world. There's racism, there's sexism, and now there is adultism. Yeah, I... Uh, you know, when I talk about uh, this idea of the cult of adulthood, um, what I'm really saying is that the adult point of view has become so powerful in our society and so pervasive. Um, there's really two main groups that are left out. Uh, they would be older people and uh, children and younger people. So what do children lose in this process? If you look at children today, you can find many, many examples of how a childhood is being restructured and positioned really as a, a leaping off point that, that, that uh, can lead you to what's really worthwhile, and that's a life as an adult. What do you mean? I think you can really point to two ways that adulthood has uh, changed the fabric of uh, childhood. Uh, one is the... Uh, vast increase in organized sports activities uh, that are offered really as a, as a preferable way of children spending time and energy compared to uh, the much more uh, open and organic and playful uh, uh, summer vacation that a lot of listeners uh, recall for themselves. For example, uh, in the place of the sandlot kind of uh, baseball game, 
instead of that, we have a little league which keeps statistics on the batting averages of the children. Those two things might seem the same, but they're actually radically different. And um, the second thing I want to say about play is that um, the amount of time that children play uh, has been declining. Um, and uh, strangely enough or not, uh, uh, children have been adopting more and more uh, adult-type activities in, uh, in preference to open-ended play. So what is lost for older people in this system? Wow. I mean, wow. Uh, it's, it's devastating. Um, we, we, we are witness right now in our society, we are witness to a systematic program of destruction that is aimed at the, literally aimed at the eradication of what uh, for 10,000 generations would have been known as elderhood. Um, we live in a society now that is organized around the precept that adulthood lasts forever. That once you become a productive, independent adult, there is no other acceptable way to live. And um, I'm a geriatrician, so uh, take care of older people, and I can tell you that there are millions of people out there who are clinging on to the myth of independence because they're afraid that if they lose their grip on independence, they'll be removed from the community and placed in a nursing home. Our society looks at old age and sees one thing, and that is decline, and is therefore blind uh, to some of the most miraculous things that old age has to offer. Now, you admit that there was going to be some question as to the title of your book, and the subtitle ended up being How Elders Will Save the World. And I have to say, this is... um yeah, this is pretty weighty responsibility for people, you say, who have been devalued by modern society. Right. So, Dr. Bill Thomas, how will elders save the world? Here's a couple of ways why I think elders will save the world. First, elders historically around the world and through history have been peacemakers. And, and uh, well, I don't mean old generals. I mean old people, old grandmothers and grandfathers have historically been seen as peacemakers and have functioned as peacemakers. And um, let me just say, why elders are good peacemakers is the very fact that they can no longer win bar fights. They can't enforce their will through violence on other people. And they can serve as peacemakers for that very reason. Uh, let, let me just say that surveys show that the emotional life of older people in general is more positive, less negative, more resilient generally than the emotional life of younger people. And um, there is a long, long history of elders as stewards, elders speaking on behalf of the world of which in the not distant future they'll no longer be a part. The reason that's often been true is that elders generally don't lust after the latest sports car from Ferrari. They're generally much more interested in, in the well-being of their family and the future well-being of their grandchildren and so on. And so they have a different take on, on the environment very often than younger people do. The second thing I think is really important. We used aging as an adaptive evolutionary trait to develop a new period in the life cycle that's not shared with any other animal, and that period is elderhood. Uh, 
And the, the first and primary function of elderhood is grandparenting. And uh, it's been a, a staggering success. I mean, if you put grandparenting up against the wheel and fire, <laughs> grandparenting is way bigger invention than either of those two things. So, so, so give me some details of, of this grandparenting adaptation in our evolution that you say is so important. Well, you know, in particular, I want you to think about what grandparenting lets us do. It affords human beings the opportunities to support the young, not with the energy and uh, resources of one generation, but with the energy and resources of two generations. And so old age and grandparenting has actually been critical to shaping who we are as, as a species. Bill, I've got to ask you one thing, though, about grandparenting. Mm-hmm. Are we really talking about grandmothers here? Wow, you, you put your finger right on it. I was trying to be polite to the grandpas out there. The truth is the research indicates that grandmothering is pretty darn important. And there are studies around the world that show, for example, there's a study from India that shows a household where the mother's mother is living in the household that wife will have a higher level of fertility and her children will have a higher level of survival than a household where the wife's mother's not there. All around the world, there's lots of evidence that grandmothers increase reproductive success and decrease child mortality. And um, part of the reason I wrote this book was uh, to help people see uh, the potential for a new future where old age is truly respected and an honored part of our social fabric. Dr. Bill Thomas is a geriatrician in upstate New York and is author of the book, What Are Old People For? How Elders Will Save the World. Dr. Thomas, thanks for taking this time with me today. Always good to be with you. Just ahead, the perils and promises of bringing a remote mountain kingdom into global commerce and communications. First, this note on emerging science from Katie Zemseff. The power of suggestion can influence everything from how we eat to how we shop. And now, scientists say it can also affect how we smell. Researchers at Oxford University monitored the brain variations of 12 subjects who were exposed to various smells. As different odors were presented, words would appear inside special glasses worn by the subjects. After each odor, the subject would rate the smell as pleasant or unpleasant. Smells range from the unmistakable odors of flowers and burned plastic to more ambiguous scents resembling cheddar cheese. In these cases, scientists paired the cheesy smells with the phrases cheddar cheese or body odor. Not surprisingly, subjects rated the pleasantness of what they smelled much higher when it was called cheese rather than body odor. Turns out the cheddar cheese label produced a sensation in the part of the brain where pleasant odors are processed. Scentless air labeled cheddar cheese also activated this area, but the cheesy smell label body odor produced no activity at all, giving credence to the theory that what our brain sees outweighs what it smells, even if information is inaccurate. So next time you're unsure how fresh your milk is, do yourself a favor and follow your nose. 
not the claims of freshness on the label. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Katie Zemseth. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Verizon, providing 411 directory assistance for residential and business numbers locally or across the country. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, public radio stations across the nation are putting a spotlight on the effects of globalization. Living on Earth's contribution to Think Global takes us to one of the smallest nations in Asia, Bhutan sits in the rugged Himalayan mountain range between China and India, and its physical isolation has allowed it to endure as a Buddhist kingdom, governed as much by Buddhist philosophy as by law. Indeed, as this nation of less than a million people began to emerge on the world stage, the king of Bhutan proclaimed a goal of gross national happiness, rather than aiming at merely increasing the financial measure of gross national product. According to the king, one of the ways to encourage happiness is to allow television and the Internet into his remote nation, and the changes underway are being closely watched. As part of the Worlds of Difference documentary series on global cultural change, Karen Michelle produced our report called The Buddha is One and Zeros. Yeah, I was born here in this house. This is a four-story Pamit Sering was my guide to Bhutan. A businessman in his mid-40s, he'd been recommended by friends. Pema wasn't really a guide, but he seemed to know everyone and at least something about everything. I was told often that he was considered the Bhutanese Patrick Swayze. He's a good dancer, and in profile you could see the resemblance in the sculptured cheekbones and the set of the jaw. But this Patrick Swayze wears a dark robe-like garment, the go, traditionally worn by Bhutanese men. Now Pema lives in the city, though he clearly remembers the home of his childhood in the village of Nimju. Dryer meats and everything. And then... Hardly any vehicles, only a couple of uh, trucks and few jeeps. So for us, like uh, when when we used to see a vehicle coming from far away, we used to get uh, so scared that uh, as if a monster is coming towards uh, us, and we used to jump off the road, look for a bush, hide behind the bush, and that is how it was. Now, after all these years when I'm back, it has developed like hell. The roads don't yet reach all of the country, nor does electricity, though it's come to Nimju. Everybody has light. In fact, you can see in the kitchen also now with gas, gas stove, then uh, electrical uh, equipments like a um, water boiler, rice cooker, and everything you see. Those just didn't even know what these things were for. And then, as we were talking, the lights went out. And what just happened? Uh, electricity failure. But you can see some lights on the other side. So it must be this phase must have gone. No big deal to Pema as we went back to using the kerosene lamps of his youth. The electricity, delivered mainly by hydropower, is somewhat erratic, both in the city and here in the village. Pema's teenage cousin, Deki Wangmo, lives in this house when she's on break from school in the city of Timpu. We stand at the entrance to the Chosum, the prayer room that's in every Bhutanese home. There are paintings of the Buddha in various forms, draped with white prayer shawls, brass bowls of water, some oranges, sticks of incense, 
A calico cat drinks water from the offerings. Deki says that's good luck. She wears the traditional women's dress, the kira. The garment is in earth-toned stripes and reaches to her ankles. Deki wears a white blouse underneath and a fuchsia-colored jacket over it. Everything is changing, especially those who are staying in the town. They always wear pants and all. And those who are wearing kohs and kiras, they are also encouraged to wear pants. Teenagers everywhere like to be trendy, even in the Buddhist kingdom of Bhutan. Deki thinks the desire to dress like the West is a potential threat to life as her elder cousin Pema knew it. Uh, I'm not really sure, but 50 percent, I think, Bhutan is definitely going to this culture. Uh, if you lose our culture, then I don't think they will pres- give much importance to our culture and all. Then after that, all will be like foreigners only, all the Bhutanese peoples. Then after that, I think somebody might come and rule our country. She means China or India, just as India took over Sikkim and China absorbed Tibet. She hopes the king will be strong in resisting their overtures. Okay, uh, I'll sing one song. It's in praise of our king uh, in those olden days. In the outdoor market in Paro, vendors sell produce, haunches of dried yak meat, large posters of the king, homemade chili powder, and rubber flip-flops. Everyone wears either a kira or a go, except for the many monks in their maroon robes. A monk sits at the entrance to the market, chanting. Everyone who passes gives him at least some change. Generosity is expected. It's part of the Buddhist way. My office is, not only our office, it's a small temple. So I'm surrounded with all the deities. I, I draw spiritual inspiration from them. Rinchen Kandu lives in the city of Timpu, a couple of hours' moderately terrifying drive from Paro. Rinchen Kandu's business card reads, Rich and Can Do. It's likely the latter part is more accurate. Rinchen composes music for the fledgling Bhutanese film industry, works on a Zonka English dictionary, and is father to a five-year-old allegedly reincarnated lama, a tiku. Buddhism in our na- language is called Nangba. Nangba means self-introspection. You have to look inside yourself. And to look inside yourself, you have to have the third eye, of course. The two eyes are always looking out- outward. We have to employ the third eye within ourselves and see what is best and then glean the best and use it, try to adjust to our own situation. That's what we are uh, trying to do. And that's also the uh, policy of the Royal Government of Bhutan. On July 2nd, 1999, in a speech as part of his Silver Jubilee celebration, the king made a surprise announcement. It came near the end of his remarks and received the only applause of the event. Television, the internet. The king said that from that moment on, television and the internet would be allowed in the country of 700,000 or so people, most of them rural, most of them farmers, many of them without the electricity necessary to use these innovations. 
Some Bhutanese already had illegal satellite dishes to receive TV from India, hidden under the eaves of the roof of their homes. As I learned from one of Pemut Sering's friends at Benny's Bar in Timpu, the king's announcement was welcome, but not seen as a big, big deal by most Bhutanese. We had video movies before TV. So when TV came in, it wasn't like, wow, you know, great, we've never seen a TV. It's a history channel. It's a ten sports channel. Rinzi Dorji was ecstatic about the king's announcement. Now he's one of the country's cable operators, providing more than 40 channels to his subscribers. Bhutanese people as such uh, are very influenced by our religion. We try to be in, uh, not in the extreme, we believe in uh, kind of uh, in the middle path. So I think Bhutanese people by nature and by, by our culture, we know how to be responsible. We know what to watch. And uh, I think uh, television as such has brought happiness to most of our people, and this is what I'm doing, <laughs> bringing happiness. <laughs> who is the world heavyweight champion, but Triple H is not. Oh, you know, I don't understand that because Triple H... There was some unhappiness. Professional wrestling was the culprit. <laughs> and I had several complaints from the parents, saying that the elder brother is trying to imitate the... <laughs> the actions that they saw on the, tele, on the wrestling to his younger brother, and then he was having problems. <laughs> and he told me to stop airing such kind of programs. <laughs> but then as a provider, I have to see the interests of all my clients. Clients who hardly ever see each other in person anymore. Before, I used to know almost all the people in Timpu. Now, because of television and all this and your own work, hardly meet, we meet each other. In the early days, we used to all, you know, go around, meet, and in the town, we used to see each other. But it's now less frequent. Socializing is less frequent. Payment <laughs> <laughs> Tsering's wife, Tsering, and her older sister, Yangtze, get together at his house just about every afternoon. There are two TVs in the home, one for the adults, the other for the kids. My younger one likes to watch cartoons, and then my younger one likes to watch MTV, V channel and what's that one? All music channels, yeah. And what do you like to watch? I watch Bold and Beautiful. I'm addicted to that serial. <laughs> so is Saring's big sister, who sits in bed watching TV. So basically, everybody's doing that. Oh, yeah, 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 they are. Because we are just sitting around doing nothing. No exercise. Sitting, watching TV, eating, front of the TV. As a family, like we hardly talk to each other. No talking because we have no time to talk. <laughs> we are busy watching our, That's really our thing, oh. our TV. That's really true. That's what my sister just said. People don't have time for their children. Half the time they don't know where the kids are because they are, you know, glued to the TV. Another hour at nine meters. Uh, the tendency for a lot of people is to think that, oh, this must be really bad. Shukshan Pekdorji was recently commissioned to assess the impact of media in Bhutan. The Ministry of Information and Communications wanted to know, how can Bhutan's media contribute to gross national happiness? I found out most Bhutanese are very, very open to new influences and they're very confident that they'll be able to pick the good from the bad. And that seems to be a very common... Um, a shared feeling among many Bhutanese, and they're confident that, no, our children will, you know, 
learn so much. They see the positive rather than the negative. English improves by watching TV, say the parents, who must weigh language skills with the product lust promoted by commercials. I met a 20-year-old who was so taken by the first ad she ever saw on TV for face cream that now she wants to open Bhutan's first advertising agency. Her younger brother, on the other hand, was just taken with TV itself, becoming in his inertia as obese as any fast-food-chopping American adolescent. Peck's study confirmed that parents were right that their children spent too much time in front of the tube, and also right that there are beneficial aspects to exposure to the global village. The study also stresses the need to include images of the local villages as well. I think the main issue uh, in terms of the media today in Bhutan is content. How do we create enough content to balance the inflow of um, media, whether it's images or just information? And with that, we come to the end of the morning program of the BBS. Thank you for being with us. I'm Sonam Pandan, and I'll be back in the afternoon at 2 p.m. with the afternoon English service. So join me then. Uh, my name is Mingbo. I'm managing director of Bhutan Broadcasting Service here in Thimpu. Thimpu Bhutan. Or you can even log on to our website at bbs.com. We have four hours of live broadcast and four hours of rebroadcast the following morning. That is television. And, of course, radio in four different languages, uh, two regional languages, one national language and one in English. Fifteen hours a day, nearly a fourth of it the soundtrack taken from BBS TV. Though much of BBS TV isn't visually sophisticated or stimulating, a man or men in somber go sitting behind a table being serious. The real drama is in the large number of public service announcements, many of them for AIDS, including one counseling that HIV isn't transmitted from toilet seats. With a national literacy rate at just over 50 percent, BBS Managing Director Mingbo sees a need for the Bhutanese Broadcasting Service to provide both education and entertainment. Entertainment programs, songs and dances on the TV programs. And right now we have so many uh, channels. Uh, some of the channels, uh, they can't make head and tail of it. So the solution is to provide boarding facilities to the children. The radio and TV staffs of BBS are the same, a convergence of necessity. And there aren't enough resources, human or financial, to increase the amount or the sophistication of local programming. BBS's star producer studied at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Most Bhutanese men wear their hair short. Sewang Dendup's locks curl down his neck. The TV is definitely emerging as a, a medium. But uh, not surprisingly, because... Uh, the art of visual storytelling has always been there. If you go to our temples, it's replete with paintings, right? If you go to Bhutanese houses, you see all these uh, traditional paintings that depicts the life of the Buddha. So, you know, I mean, well, how is television different? Bhutan has mobile phone service and an internet provider, too. And so there are internet cafes, without cafe or generally internet connection, however many computers there are. It seemed video gaming was more profitable in a country with at most 10% computer literacy. 2% may be closer to the truth. A low-cost desktop computer costs as much as a year's average salary in Bhutan. Pema has a computer at home. His cousin Deki was eager to learn how to use one. And... Mm, computer, I, I don't know much, but uh, for the, f mm, television, I think if you watch this informative channels, I don't think it's, mm, it's going to lose our culture because it, show, it gives us the ideas and it also mm, 
makes us aware of the aware of things which are happening out in outside world. But this uh, internet, I don't know much about it. Well, she's learned. Recently, I got an email from Decky in the form of a Mother's Day card from an online service. So far as I know, there's no greeting card industry, nor Mother's Day in Bhutan. Now she's learned that on the Internet, the store is always open. In a country where credit cards are even newer than television, can a local Bhutanese shopping channel be far behind? Who knows? Maybe that's another way to achieve gross national happiness. For Living on Earth, I'm Karen Michelle in Bhutan. Our story, The Buddha is One and Zeros, was produced as part of Worlds of Difference, a project of Homelands production and made possible in part with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For more information, visit our website, livingonearth.org. Coming up on Living on Earth, people, and lots of them. And for the first time in history, more of them live in cities than in rural areas. So this year, the United Nations World Environment Day will focus on new challenges facing urban areas. The UN event has been held every year since 1974, but this is the first time it will take place in the United States. In two weeks, Living on Earth goes to San Francisco, the site of World Environment Day, and looks at where the Golden Gate City is eco-friendly and where it has room for improvement. How Green Is My City, coming next month on Living on Earth. We leave you this week just north of San Francisco, along the banks of the Russian River. Ed Herman collected these calls of birds and other creatures that echo each morning through the valley. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, and Steve Gregory, with help from Christopher Bolick and Kelly Cronin. Katie Zemseff is our intern. Our technical director is Paul Wabrick. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.